Hey, it's Travis. Today we're going to re-release the episode that we recorded with Jason Reynolds back in 2016. I think the conversation that he has with Colby is just a good one to share again right now. Thanks for listening. Check, check, one, two, one, two, one, two, check, check. Jason Reynolds, Ghost, Simon and Schuster. Welcome to The Yarn, a school library journal production. I'm Colby Sharp. Today, we continue our Unraveler series with the author of Ghost, Jason Reynolds. In each episode of this series, a book creator will take you inside one of their books, their inspiration, fears, frustrations, triumphs, epiphanies, the whole thing pulled apart, unraveled. I had the opportunity to sit down and chat with Jason last month at NCTE. In this episode, he talks about how he became a writer, a typical day, and his strong feelings about the evolution of the Guinness Book of World Records. Ghost is about a young man named Castle Cranshaw who has nicknamed himself Ghost. Um, He experiences a moment of trauma. His father uh, attempts to murder him, to shoot him and his mother one night, one drunken night. And that was the night that he learned that he could run uh, really fast. Uh, And he eventually takes that trauma to a track team. Um, And it's on that track team that he sort of finds his way back to the middle. The the book was born from this idea that, first of all, I wanted to do a sports book, but I didn't want to do a basketball book, um, which is typically the go-to sport. But basketball, Kwame Alexander has covered that, right? And and Walter Dean Myers covered that before him. Uh, And Matt DeLapena covered, you know, like there have been a lot of those books that have been really, really good. And so I don't really have much to add to that space. Um, Plus, I'm more fascinated with this idea of running, because I think that running is such a broad metaphor for uh, the lives of so many young people. And so I I wanted to tell a story about how running is basically the um, acceptance of suffocation. You know, it's this idea that you are okay or at least have grown comfortable uh, with the idea that you are suffocating because that's what it means to run. Your body is going through trauma. It is working uh, overtime to to save you as you push it to the limit. Uh, and a lot of kids that we that, that are living in our communities uh, are kids who have grown accustomed to the feeling of suffocation in many, many ways. And, and, and so that's where it, that was the initial sort of seed. And I, and I have a friend, I mean, Ghost in his sort of traumatic experience comes from one of my dear friends. It really happened to him. His stepfather tried to shoot him. Like That was a very real thing. And I wanted to honor that trauma. Um, and I wanted to uh, figure out a way to create triumph from it without sort of being didactic or heavy handed uh, in a book. I'm a big nerd, right? But I'm a nerd when it comes to like all the trivial things. So I couldn't tell you the ins and outs of, say, Harry Potter, like most of my colleagues. Um, but I could tell you just random things that I find really fascinating. And so one day I was in a, a bookstore and I was looking for the Guinness Book of World Records because I'm, I've always been just interested in the, the kinds of records that people set. And I remember being a kid and how the Guinness Book of World Records back then looked like an almanac. It was sort of old school trade, big fat, you know. Um, and now it's this big glitter, hard hardcover coffee table book. It's so strange. Uh, and so I found the, the latest edition and I pulled it out and I started flipping through and I'm reading all these stupid, these you know, to me at least, these stupid titles. Because I feel like when I was younger, it was like, who has the highest vertical jump? 
who can run the fastest, right? Like these were like real human feats, right? And now it's like who can blow up the most balloons with their nose, right? Like that's a real Guinness World Record guy named Andrew Dahl. That's his world record. And, And that fascinated me. And so I wanted to make sure that I attached some whimsy and some curiosity to this character who had been dealing with trauma because I know for a fact that we always thin slice children when we think about them being traumatized. And the trauma is never, it never sort of takes over their lives, right? It's a thing that exists with them and they carry it around with them and it shows themselves every now, it shows itself every now and again. But most of the time they're still being children. And I wanted to sort of give ghosts some levity by doing that. So the first thing I wrote was the Guinness World Records. Like started to write down like this guy, Andrew Dahl, because I was so fascinated and so amused and a little like pissed off that this guy is in the book that he has a record for blowing up balloons with his nose and that's how it started you know a typical day a typical day for me i always wake up around 6 30 monday through sunday and i'm typically at least five days a week um, i'm at the computer when i'm not traveling i'm at the computer by 7 30 um, and i work until around 2 30 in the afternoon um, and after that, I go to the movies or I'll go check on my mother or um, I'll do a little shopping. I'll go some, do some grocery shopping, you know, whatever the, the normal things that I, you know, grownups have to do during the day. Um, and that's typically how it goes. And at night, I typically have dinner and catch up with some friends and, 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 you know, veg out reading a book or watching a documentary or something nerdy like that. And I call it a night. Um, but I, I'm writing five, six hours a day, five days a week, um, no matter what. Unless I'm traveling and then it's cut down to about an hour and a half or two hours. Um, no matter what, though. My story to, you know, my journey to becoming a writer is, is a little bit strange. I, 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 wasn't, I wasn't much of a reader. I didn't, um, I was what now people would call a reluctant reader. Um, except I wasn't reading anything. I didn't read any any novels until I was 17 and a half years old uh, because in the 80s and in the early 90s, there were no novels about kids like me. You know, there were, there's a strange gap in our literary history, specifically when it comes to young adult novels, um, where our stories aren't being covered. Walter Dean Myers was the only thing I think we had, but his heyday was in the 70s. And not his heyday in terms of his career, but his heyday in his life. So what he was hearkening back to was his life in the 70s. Um, and those books were amazing. Uh, but they still weren't like like Walter wasn't talking about hip hop and hip hop was huge. Right. Walter wasn't talking about very few of his books. I mean, he would talk about like heroin addiction. But when we were growing up, crack was was ruining our neighborhoods. And those books don't necessarily exist. Um, HIV was a new thing. Right. And those are the things that I was seeing in my community. But I wasn't seeing in any books. And for a kid like me, I needed to see that. Um, it doesn't mean it's all I needed to see, but I needed to start somewhere. And those books weren't there. So I didn't read anything. What I did do was I, I read uh, I read rap lyrics when I was nine and ten, eleven years old. I started to read rap lyrics because back then, you know that you could get liner notes with your cassette tape, and I would read Queen Latifah lyrics and Tupac lyrics and Nas and Public Enemy and N.W.A. and Snoop and just reading the lyrics and realizing that there's, there's that there's rhythm to this and there's poetry, uh, and that there are connections between Tupac and Langston Hughes or Queen Latifah's Ladies First and Maya Angelou's Phenomenal Woman, and, and like realizing that there are all these connections. And I'm not learning this in school per se, but I'm piecing it together myself. And I decided I wanted to write poetry, and that's what I did for a very, very long time. That's my original discipline. Um, and it wasn't until I was 25 that Christopher Myers, the great Walter D. Myers's son, took me to the beach. We were hanging out in Brooklyn, and uh, he sort of challenged me. You know, his father, Walter, was getting older, and, and 
I didn't know that it, you know, a year and a half later he'd be gone. Um, but Chris, you know, he basically gave me the charge. He said, why don't you try to write something? Like, you've got this life. You've lived this colorful sort of life. Why don't you try to write a story? Because my dad can't do it forever, you know. And uh, I wrote when I was the greatest. I had already been in the industry. I was signed when I was 20 to Harper. Um, a book called My Name is Jason came out. It was a collection of poetry and artwork. And, you know, it flopped. And I couldn't get I couldn't get anything else picked up um, until I wrote when I was the greatest six years later. And that's kind of how it happened. It was a strange, like, I'm like, I can't, I'm like the luckiest kid in the world, you know. I love it, man. I, it, more so than writing, though, I love telling stories. That's really what it is for me. I, I'm, I'm fascinated with what we can do on the page with words. I'm not, um, I'm always going to trust my intuition far more than I will my education. I don't have some of the educational background as far as writing is concerned. And, and I don't I haven't read all the books that some of my peers have read. I don't, you know, so that's not one of my strong suits. What I do have, though, is gut. And, and I recognize that because I don't have the education, that kind of education, I haven't been educated out of creativity or out of imagination. Um, and so I still believe that you can break lines wherever you want to break lines, even in prose, right? And that you can write one word sentences if you feel like it you can stagger language and and tab the way you want to tab and indent the way you want to indent it's still a it's still a creative art form even in prose um and so i try to use i try to use that sort of that chip on my shoulder that bit of irreverence to push the way we tell stories because all i really care about is the dissemination of stories you know it's the stories that build our cultures it's the stories that save our lives and that's that's sort of my, my main goal You know, there are kids around this country who have never seen anyone that looks like them write these books. When I show up to schools or, or to prisons, there are always young people, young men and young, young ladies who say, we didn't think you were going to look like that. Right. My, my, my personhood, uh, my body um, is just as much of, of an important piece of the puzzle as these stories. You can't you can't be what you can't see. And a lot of these kids don't even know that that this is a viable option for them, that, that them telling their own stories could be a career. So me showing up in T-shirt and sneakers and tattoos and long hair, looking like them and their older brothers uh, and their fathers is, is, is really important for me because I, I needed it and it wasn't there for me. Um, but the other thing is, look, man, I, I, I worked for a long time and I went through, I went through uh, quite a bit to get to this space. And the one thing that you can't stop thinking about once you actually arrive to whatever you arrive to is holding on for dear life. You don't ever want to go back to, to not having uh, these moments. You never want to go back to eating peanut butter out of the jar. So I'll do whatever it takes to make sure that my mother doesn't have to worry about her finances, to make sure that everybody in my family is taken care of. Um, and I work, my, I work myself to the bone to ensure that I never um, have to exist outside of this space because, because I because I sacrificed so much to get here. I just want people to feel cared for. Young people to feel cared for out here. I think we wag our fingers so much at them. We rarely listen to them. We rarely honor them. You know, I think we dismiss them in the most heinous way these days because we find there's always this notion that they're 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 a lost generation, and that's and I think that's ridiculous. We ought to be ashamed of ourselves for for saying such terrible, terrible things about about arguably the most brilliant generation to ever exist. Our job is to pour love on them, right? Not to crush them, not to discourage them, but to tell them you're great, um, and I need you to know that so that you can live up to the expectation of greatness. Um, and I, and I think that that is. Uh, you know, that's the best part about it. Also, look, man, 
there are there are hundreds, thousands of, of incredible writers, people who could write me under the table, um, who may not ever get their shot for whatever reason. And I got mine, which means that I have to spend the rest of my life justifying why. You know, man, I think, you know, we, we talk about diversity, right? That's like the, the hot the hot button topic. And it should be. And it's not a trend. It's not a it's 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 a through line, right? We have to be continually talking about uh, diversity, but we have to do more than just talk. We have to figure out how to diversify the industry. And when we talk about the industry, the first thing people say is, you know, we have to get more stories. But that's not the industry, right? The industry are more diverse editors, more diverse agents, more diverse uh, cover designers, right? More diverse people who sit in the C-suite and who divvy out the money, who decide what gets funded and what doesn't, what gets sold, what gets bought, right? The more people in the sales department, the educational department, we have to diversify every single facet of not just this industry, but of all industries, um, so that we uh, can really put a dent in it. And look, the, the writers are the foot soldiers. We're doing the best we can, and we're trying to make sure that, and, and I, this is a, a shout-out to all the writers out there uh, of all the different cultures and, and, and backgrounds and, 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 and you know orientations. Like We also have to be raising up uh, the next generation. We have to, like If you are a writer, if you are a writer in this industry, be a mentor. Right? What good is it for you to do all this work if we're not raising up the next crop? I, I was fortunate to have Jacqueline Woodson, fortunate to have Rita Williams Garcia, Lori Halls Anderson, Walter Dean Myers, Christopher Myers, uh, you know, Sharon Draper. These people keep their hands on me and, 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 and usher me through this process and usher me to my seat at the table. They created that space for me. And I'm never gonna pretend like that didn't happen. No, they they made a space for me to make sure that my voice was heard. The librarians like Deb Taylor out of Baltimore uh, and, and Dr. Rudine Sims Bishop, these incredible people who have guided me through this, 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 this arena. Like this is not like, a, this is not by chance. There are people who created the lane for me and walked me down to the table. Um, that is our job and our responsibility. If you see something in somebody, then champion that person publicly, raise them up, right? Give them the chops, be hard on them. Let them know that we expect greatness and excellence and nothing else. And if they can exhibit that, then you will do everything you can to make sure their voices are heard. That is our job. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Yarn. I'd also like to thank Candace Green of Simon & Schuster for helping me coordinate this episode. And NCTE for letting me use the executive boardroom to conduct interviews during their annual conference. Jason Reynolds recently won the NCTE Charlotte Huck Award for Outstanding Fiction for Children. You can find the complete list of Charlotte Huck books at the NCTE website. We'll provide a link in the show notes. Big thanks to Philip Stead for creating our theme song. Additional music for this episode from the Free Music Archives by BOPD. I went back and forth as to whether or not I should include the last question I asked Jason. The question was a personal one. I decided to include it. Maybe it will help you as much as it helped me. Here it is. So this is a, a question that I'm asking for me. Um, so I'm, I live in a very rural, white town in Michigan, and everybody looks like me. Um, and what can people like me do to, uh, I don't know how to ask. like I want to do everything that I can do to make this world a better place 
and I don't want to act like I'm this this great person and look at me I'm doing this or that but like I want to do what I can do but I don't know I mean like what advice would you have for people like me yeah look I mean at the end of the day it is uh you have a responsibility first to yourself I think that I'm not gonna, it's not on me to put the weight on you for you to change the world, right? What I would say though is that you have a responsibility to you, first of all, and and I think even you having uh, your podcast and you sort of making sure that we can even discuss this kind of stuff on your podcast is, is, a, is, is important. Every small thing, I think we, we're always looking for the big thing that we can do. I think the one thing that you can do um, is exhibit that which you've already exhibited, right? Like to make sure that you are aware and can admit, like I come from this this white town, I'm, I'm in a space where things are not as progressive or at least as open uh, as perhaps they, they need to be, um, but you're there, right? You exist in that space. And I think as long as there are people like you who are there and that you, uh, can be an example of what that looks like, knowing that you don't deserve a cookie for doing so, um, I, I personally can't ask you for much more. I think advocacy um, is an interesting thing because the, the part about advocacy that we oftentimes leave out is that in, in the actual definition of, of advocacy is the word public, right? So, so like there is some public work that has to happen, but this is public work as well. I'm not expecting you to go outside with a billboard and say like Black Lives Matter, right? Like it's not, it's not necessarily necessary. It's also not you know, unnecessary either, right? Um, but I, but I think that pu- whatever public uh, advocacy work, whatever public voice you have, you have to use it. This is your public voice, um, and when you are in spaces where you see injustice happening, I, we do need you to say something. We do need you to be safe, right? But 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 look, man, I, I, if you if you see something, say something. Even if it means that you have to put yourself in a, in a space of discomfort or somebody else in a space of discomfort, even if that means that you may lose a friend. Um, you losing that one friend could save the life of some people. Uh, and I think that we we just need more of that. We need more people to be uh, to be willing to do that. And it's funny, right? I was, I was going to say we need people to be selfless, but the truth is that, no, I need you to be selfish. I think that this is also a part of your own self-interest. I need you to tap into your own self-interest. You can't be awesome if all of us ain't awesome. You can't be free if all of us ain't free, right? You can't live your best life if the rest of us can't that's a reality so so there's sometimes some of that self-interest has to also be there you also need to live a good life your life is made better when my life is made better Um, and, and i think that's the way we have to look at it as well 